Hello, I'm John Martin and I'm pleased you can join us on Search for Truth. Brian Johnson, our Bible teacher, is dealing with objections to the Gospel in this ten-part series. Today the objection Brian's offering help with is how can you believe in hell and a God of love? This is the eighth objection in this ten-week series, but there are many more we could add that people have given when challenged with commitment to the Christian faith. I can remember the case of a neighbour whose name was Kath. For weeks in a house group Bible study, a few of us in the local church shared our faith, and the questions came pouring out of Kath. They were honest, sincere questions, pretty well all the classic objections to the Christian gospel. But still Kath wrestled with the issue of coming to faith in Christ. Then the opportunity came along to take her to a gospel rally or crusade. In fact, it was a Search for Truth national rally conducted by the Churches of God responsible for these programmes. This was back in the mid-1980s. Kath heard the gospel powerfully presented in song, testimony and sermon that evening, and God spoke to her. She wanted to go forward and give her life to Christ, but in the end she felt she couldn't negotiate the crowds and the narrow gaps between the rows of seats. But on the bus on the way home, we had the joy of leading her to Christ. Now the reason why I'm telling you this is because one of her neighbours asked her the very next day, What about all your questions, Kath? Have you finally accepted the answers to them all now? Kath's reply indicated that her understanding of the answers previously given to her hadn't changed. It was simply that she'd taken a step of faith and now found that those same answers satisfied her. They were a support to her faith, but could never be a substitute for it. And we need to bear this in mind when trying to help others and ensure that our own lifestyle echoes our faith. So, Brian, how can you believe in hell and a God of love? That must be one of the most common objections. Perhaps we've been emphasising the love God commended towards us in that Jesus died for us to save us from the lake of fire. Ah, the lake of fire! That's the cue for this objection. They say, you've just claimed that God's a God of love, but now you're talking of hell fire. How is it possible to believe in hell and a God of love? Surely, if God's a loving God, he won't send anyone to the lake of fire forever. There seems to be some force to it at first hearing, doesn't there? But I doubt if those who raise this objection have ever stopped to analyse their own assumptions. The assumptions which are hidden within this objection which they're making. Can you see what the questioner is assuming? They're assuming there's something obviously wrong with the idea of God, especially a so-called loving God, sending anyone to the lake of fire. The hidden assumption is that somehow immoral. No loving being would ever do such a thing. Now, it could be worth asking the questioner where this sense of morality, this gut feeling about the rights and wrongs of the situation comes from. You see, Jesus himself used the technique of questioning his questioners. It's not a game, but it can show the questioner deeper issues that lie behind his own question, and so perhaps test his or her sincerity. Have they thought this through, or is it a second-hand objection, conveniently wheeled out to avoid talk of God and of our accountability to him? It's especially relevant to do this if we suspect this objection is not the result of someone struggling with weak faith, but if we think the questioner really is implying that they found in this objection a satisfying reason for not believing in God at all. A totally consistent atheist doesn't acknowledge the existence of evil and claims not to recognise the difference between right and wrong. 
I've heard of this being taken to extremes in a debate between a philosopher who was an atheist and another philosopher who was a Christian. The atheist objected to the Christian's use of the term evil. Why, you may be asking. Well, if he were to accept such a thing as evil existed, then good must also exist. For there's got to be a contrast whereby the one helps to define the other as being its opposite. But then, if both evil and good exist, then it stands to reason that there are a whole lot of in-between values, some things not as good as other things, degrees of evil, if you like. In other words, we end up with a whole spectrum, arranged according to some sort of scale of values. Meaning, we must have a moral scale, a kind of yardstick with which we intuitively measure morality, or how good or evil some event is. But to have such a moral law also presumes there's a giver of that moral law, which is, of course, what the Bible claims is indeed the case. So back to our atheist philosopher, who naturally enough wanted to sidestep that logic by denying the existence of evil. He said evil was a meaningless term for him. It's just a label, he says, that gets used by society for things which we don't like. The Christian philosopher decided to put the atheist's view to the test. Imagine there's a young child, a baby, lying here in front of us, he says. If I, or someone else, were to take a huge kitchen knife and cut that innocent baby in pieces, would you not admit that that would be an evil thing to do? All eyes in the audience were now fixed on the atheist. I would not like that to happen, he said, but I couldn't describe it as being an evil act. There was a gasp from the audience. There were probably many who before then had not seen the existence of evil as actually presenting evidence for the existence of God. There was now no question about who'd won the debate. You remember, we were talking about the objection to the Christian message which goes like this. How can you believe in hell and also in a God of love? We were saying it's worth exposing the hidden assumption in the question, which somehow implies it's immoral for a loving God to punish persons in the lake of fire. The point is, by assuming some basis for morality, however imperfect in their understanding, the questioner has actually fatally weakened any case against God's existence that he or she might have thought they had. But some objectors may accept that there is a God, while refusing to consider it a reasonable thing for such a God to send anyone to eternal punishment. If they believe in God, they very likely will also accept that Jesus Christ was at least a good man, a great moral teacher. We should then focus on the person of Jesus Christ. He's presented in the New Testament of the Bible as someone who went about doing good, always helping people in difficulty demonstrating more than anyone else the love of his Father, God. But he, more than anyone else in the Bible, was a hellfire preacher. The Bible's account of his life, which is consistent with sources outside the Bible and indeed with the impact of his life around the world ever since, the Bible account of Jesus' life shows him to have been the kindest and truest of men. The issue of hell and a God of love comes into sharp focus in the person of Jesus Christ himself. He, the kindest and truest of men, taught repeatedly about the reality of hell, of the judgment to come, 
Jesus spoke about hell some twelve times, as recorded in the four Gospels. Was he being untrue or unkind on those occasions? That doesn't fit at all. Much rather, because of who he is, and because of what he's like, he was giving fair warning to all, so that we might, by God's grace, escape such a fearful reality as eternal punishment in the lake of fire. It was because of his perfect knowledge of the reality of hell that Jesus came down in love to earth to make possible, through his death for our sins, a way of escape for all who believe on him. The Bible says all have sinned and that this inevitably leads to death, for God must punish sin. Death, as we understand it in a physical sense here on earth, brings separation and feelings of remoteness and alienation. This is the essence of eternal death in the lake of fire, total separation and alienation from God. Jesus spoke of this final state, using such descriptions as eternal fire, outer darkness and the place of weeping. These portray to us at least an agonising awareness of God's wrath, together with a total sense of loss and separation and self-loathing. Thank God that all who accept Jesus as Saviour will never suffer this fate. But those who refuse to believe on Christ will die in their sins, and where he is, they cannot go. It couldn't be fairer. God will honour for eternity what we choose now. In the light of this, please take this opportunity of accepting Jesus now as your personal Saviour. He died on the cross to take your punishment instead of you if you'll only repent and believe. I know it's not popular to speak of punishment today, whether it's God's eternal punishment of sinners who refuse to believe in Christ's sacrifice for them, or just plain ordinary punishment within society. We much prefer to treat people instead of punishing people nowadays. However, the reality is actually the very opposite of what our question thinks is fair. In real terms, There can be no loving justice for all unless there is punishment. I was reminded of this recently when on the 26th of April 2007 the verdict was announced in the Lucy Blackman trial, the murder trial in Japan. On that same morning in the BBC's Today programme, on Thought for the Day, Anne Atkins spoke about a paradox. On the one hand, the accused had been found guilty and given a life sentence. On the other hand, the victim's family was still devastated at the verdict. Why? Because he'd not been found guilty of crimes committed against her specifically. But what's the point of them demanding more? Joji Obara already had a life sentence. The point, we were reminded, was Lucy. She was beautiful. She was young. She was loved. A dreadful sin had been committed against her. If that wasn't addressed, there was a slur on her worth. I mention this because some say, why shouldn't God simply forgive every one of us? Forgive us of all our wrongs against each other. Well, if he did, he'd be suggesting that all the Lucys who've ever suffered injustice in the world don't matter. But they do matter. We all matter to God. And the point is, our sins, meaning all our wrongs, not just crimes, devalue others, as well as offending God. So many times our thoughts demean, our words belittle. That's why, on the appointed day to come, God will address everything we've ever done wrong. 
for us to receive forgiveness, which is both loving and just, all God asks us to do is to turn to him and trust fully in his Son, who served our sentence in his death on the cross. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life are ransom, shed for us his precious blood. That's all we have time for, but if you have a question or you'd like the free booklet, ask for Overcoming Objections and write to Search for Truth, P.O. Box 111, Lee, spelt L-E-I-G-H, and the postcode is WN71WJ, England. If you're listening in Australia, write to Search for Truth, Box 748, Ringwood, Victoria, 3134. Listeners in Africa, please write to Search for Truth, P.O. Box 70115, Chilomani Blantyre, Malawi, or Search for Truth, P.O. Box 37, Suriliri, Lagos State, Nigeria. Canadian listeners write to Search for Truth, P.O. Box 28026, Brantford, Ontario, N3R 7E0. Alternatively, you can email us. The address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And you might be interested to visit our website. It can be found at www.searchfortruth.org.uk. So it's been a privilege to have your company. Hope you're finding these talks helpful. And next week, Brian deals with the objection, hasn't science done away with the need for faith? But till then, it's cheerio from Brian, our studio technician David Shaw, Justine and Stephen, our singers, and me, John Martin. May God richly bless you wherever you are. On the-